This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dorr, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Annalise Lewallen about her new book, um, The Fabric of Indigeneity, Ainu Identity, Gender, and Settler Colonialism in Japan, published by the University of New Mexico Press um, and School for Advanced Research Press in 2016. Uh, welcome, Professor Lowell, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about my book. Great. Um, I wonder if you'd like to begin the interview by maybe saying a few words about yourself. For example, um, what has brought you to East Asian studies and specifically um, on topics in Japan and the Ainu people? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I was very fortunate. Um, I'm actually from East Eastern Tennessee from a town called Chattanooga. Um, and I was raised there um, and had an a excellent opportunity in high school to do a study abroad uh, program in Japan. And that was my first exposure to um, the complexity of Japan. Unfortunately, I didn't get a real um, sense of the um, ethnic diversity of the nation until later, but that sparked my interest and love for the people and culture and um, uh, the place that is Japan. Um, and so I had a chance to go back to Japan in uh, after I had completed my undergraduate studies and lived and worked there for about six years, um, three years in the South uh, around a city called Yokaichi and then in Nagoya. And then three years later, I moved up to Hokkaido and moved to a city called Obihiro and lived there, worked as a uh, on the JET program as a coordinator for international relations, doing uh, introducing international culture, etc. Um, but another really exciting thing I was able to do was introduce um, traditional Japanese culture and Hokkaido culture to the foreign nationals in my community. And that was one of the important ways I started to become more involved with the local Aino community. Um, it was during that six-year stint when I was in Nagoya that I first learned about uh, the fact that Japan actually has um, a range of um, ethnic and social um, uh, minority, minoritized communities across the country, uh, all the way from Okinawa in the south uh, to, of course, uh, Ainu in Hokkaido in the north. Ainu are also, of course, living in Kansai, also in Tokyo. But at the time, the way the sort of very limited reading materials that I was able to access back in the 90s explained it, um, Ainu live in Hokkaido. So I had this idea, I've got to go to Hokkaido, find a way to be there to learn more about the Ainu community. And that's what led me to Hokkaido, 
Um, and from there, I moved into my long journey of getting to know and become uh, acquainted with the Ainu community. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and tell us how you came to write The Fabric of Indigeneity. Right. So I was able to stay in Hokkaido for three years. Um, and then I went off to graduate school at the University of Michigan and pursued a um, research in cultural anthropology. And for uh, my project, I had proposed to go back to Japan and became very interested in what was happening specifically with Ainu women. I hadn't had uh, much opportunity to work um, work closely with Ainu women during my um, during my time living in Obihiro. And so this is a great opportunity. Um, during a couple of summers, I got to know um, the Ainu community, specifically um, Ainu community in Urakawa in southern Hokkaido, and learned that there's actually a, a very active uh, Ainu diaspora living in Tokyo as well. Um, the Ainu diaspora in Tokyo tends to be clustered around geographic uh, communities. So people who are coming from a certain part of Hokkaido, like Urakawa, um, or like Asahikawa or Sapporo or uh, uh, Biratori, etc., would tend to cluster with people from those different communities in Hokkaido. And it has a lot to do with, of course, family networks um, being a kind of um, almost like a pipeline, um, bringing people to uh, Tokyo for work and for education and for various kinds of economic opportunities. And one summer uh, in 2001, actually, I had the chance to um, attend a mat uh, weaving workshop, a clothwork um, project that was in the outskirts of Tokyo uh, in Chiba and uh, held in the home of one Ainu, a very respected Ainu elder's home. And it was at that workshop that I came to know uh, Toyama Saki Bachan, who is uh, sort of my uh, main uh, sort of companion for, uh, for the work of this book. And from that uh, sort of encounter in, uh, in Chiba, I was able to coordinate through her granddaughter and, and her daughter to return to Hokkaido um, a couple years later. And I actually uh, lived at her house um, and cooked for her, drove her around, worked as her chauffeur, but also spent many, many um, fabulous hours uh, working and living with her and hearing her voice um, and learning from her entire life story, everything from the traumatic experiences she had as a child attending uh, racially segregated uh, Ainu schools, all the way up to um, her overcoming sort of really decades of trauma from that experience of her childhood to become a, a recognized and highly respected cloth artist um, weaving kimono or weaving Ainu traditional clothing from um, Elmbark cloth also doing mat weaving, also, of course, um, embroidery, cotton embroidery, becoming an Ainu um, traditional cloth work uh, teacher in her own right, also an Ainu language teacher, um, just really an all around. Um, and also we spend a lot of time walking together in the forest. So she told me about how one should um, exercise great humility when entering the forest and offer prayers and, and actually bring a small offering before one enters to gather uh, mountain vegetables, for example. Um, but she was a tremendous, um, you know, great teacher for me um, and very much a, a trusted elder. And um, through her, through her generosity, I came to know her entire um, family which was across uh, Hokkaido, but also stretching into Tokyo or into Chiba, um, as well as the entire sort of extended community uh, there in Urakawa. 
Um, and it was from there that, um, from that experience of living with her for six months, I then moved uh, to Akan, to the community where her daughter lived and operated a uh, a traditional Ainu foods restaurant, um, also sort of a tourist arts uh, shop, minge shop, a traditional arts shop, and um, worked in that community for six months. And then I spent the final six months in Sapporo working on an Ainu women's um, survey project, which was later submitted. The findings from that survey were later submitted to the United Nations, um, to the CEDAW, the the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And it was through um, living and working and getting to know Ainu women in these very rural settings, also in a tourist community and in this urban setting that sort of gave me the greater framework and understanding of the sort of broad uh, diversity of kind of women's lived experiences um, and the gendered issues that are of great concern to them uh, today in Japan. Oh, great. This is really fascinating. Obviously, this book is based on you know, very extensive ethnographic research that you have done um, in Japan and Hokkaido uh, specifically, too. Um, so this book introduces the idea of self-craft, um, particularly the self-crafting of the fabric of indigeneity. Um, can you tell us a bit about this idea uh, in the book and what it might offer to global indigenous studies in general? Absolutely. So self-craft is um, in many ways actually tied to um, the process of uh, indigenous modernity, which I'll talk about um, a little bit uh, in which which I talk about in chapter one. Um, But self-craft is essentially the notion that um, a person may be born uh, into uh, the ancestral heritage um, or in other words, they might be in, they might inherit their Ainu um, ancestry from their from one parent or from their uh, grandparents, etc. But they may not necessarily um, have an active identity as being Ainu or belonging to an Ainu community. And so I talk about this notion of moving from being Ainu to becoming Ainu in the book, um, by which I, I don't mean to deny that a person. Um, uh, is Ainu uh, in any way that they choose. But I'm specifically focusing on the idea that um, the kind of work and the process of self-craft is an agentive, intentional, um, negotiated process wherein uh, Ainu women and men as well, but Ainu of all ages and backgrounds today make a conscious choice wherein they choose um, how and when and where and in what ways to express their Ainu identity. So I I, um, make this argument uh, against the backdrop that um, because of the legacies of racism and stigma and prejudice against Ainu, uh, many people may be assigned to the ethnic category of being Ainu, whether they consciously or positively embrace that or not. And so self-craft is the notion that, um, in this case, I'm speaking about women in the book, women in particular make a conscious choice of becoming Ainu, and then they go through a process of determining how um, they will negotiate that. So in some cases, it may mean they um, engage in a very active process of um, of learning Ainu language and um, learning Ainu oral literature, for example. In other cases, 
they begin working with Ainu cloth work. So that includes everything from making uh, mats, weaving mats on a loom, uh, making basketry from a range of different uh, natural materials, twining fibers, um, pulling fibers from elm bark and making that into thread and then weaving baskets out of that or actually uh, weaving it um, with uh, reeds, for example, gathered from uh, water bodies. Uh, it also includes, of course, the uh, traditional embroidery work through making tapestries or uh, weaving a kimono from elm bark, which is a elm bark is essentially a, a bark that is taken from the the Japanese linden tree or the or the Japanese elm tree, both of which are indigenous species to Hokkaido, um, and that's a very extensive process which involves a lot of training to learn how to do that work. Um, or they may use a cotton cloth and a, and a range of different sort of types of cloth, for example, silk, cotton. Um, some more uh, mass-produced um, kinds of cloth and um, various types of thread. And in some cases, they're actually using thread um, made from um, some of the, the twisted or the twined bass fiber. The range of textile-based, or as I refer to them, cloth work um, practices through which um, a person may choose to engage in um, uh, reimagining what it means to be Ainu uh, in this contemporary moment, as opposed to being assigned to that identity uh, by society, by the outside. And that's what I mean by self-craft. And so this is a conscious choice that women are making. And I want to emphasize that and really put women's voices and women's uh, perspectives at the center of this book. And that's part of why I use this framework. Oh, that's very interesting. And then speaking of uh, being Ainu uh, from that um, to becoming Ainu, chapter one, um, Indigenous Modernity, you introduce a range of approaches, many of which you've just talked about um, just right now, to how Ainu imagine and express their identities in contemporary Japan as modern Ainu identities. Um, so do, do Ainu people, particularly Ainu women, see uh, a, a contradiction between indigenous identity and a modern Ainu identity? And if so, how do they confront or negotiate this apparent contradiction? Yes, thank you. So this is actually a conundrum that is not unique to the Ainu community. In fact, it's a conundrum that confronts um, indigenous people really across the world. Um, in some ways, it's a byproduct of the settler colonial process. And I'll say more about that um, uh, in a little bit when we talk about chapter four. But essentially, um, the contradiction is really not for Ainu people or for indigenous people. The, the sort of perception that there should be some kind of contradiction between modernity and tradition is really a problem uh, in the eyes of the settler community, right? Because they're the ones who want to kind of neatly confine Ainu identity and Ainu cultural practices to a particular temporal category, right? So there's this kind of tension between one can either choose to be traditional um, and embody these traditional practices, um, or one can choose to be modern but and contemporary and sort of live in the contemporary world. Um, but you can't do both, right? And so Indigenous modernity is a framework which I am using um, in response to that question, essentially saying that there is no contradiction, that this is really about the agency of Ainu women in negotiating um, what it means to live in this current moment, to be contemporary Ainu, to embrace the teachings and the knowledge um, from their ancestors, to embrace 
the relationships that they have with the land and the more than human beings in the land and with the environment around them to embrace all of that while living in this current moment, um, expressing that through social media or having, you know, obviously having mobile phones, um, using a range of different uh, contemporary transportation, et cetera. So I guess one of the ways I would describe this is through this. Um, so indigenous modernity, it's rooted in this idea that indigenous peoples have always been modern. Um, by this, I mean that they've engaged in cosmopolitan, flexible relations with their neighbors. Um, they have adapted and incorporated a range of techniques um, necessary for thriving. So one example of this would be the way that Ainu women um, historically and really throughout the last 300, 400 years, uh, at least as long as we have um, material culture records uh, to be aware of this creativity. But during this period, Ainu women would bring materials such as silk, uh, steel fur from uh, salmon skins um, and even mass produced cotton cloth into their hand embroidered kimonos um, at different historical moments. So even though um, they would be uh, following certain aesthetic and cultural codes in sewing the pattern work. They are at the same time constantly innovating and using their mathematical genius to bring in these new materials. And this is something we can see today in the museum record. Um, so what this means is that cultural and cultural borrowing and resource borrowing um, have long been creative responses to a changing climate and a changing ecosystem. So this doesn't mean that colonization and assimilation were not devastating for Ainu communities. They absolutely were. They were absolutely devastating. Um, and indeed, racism, prejudice, bullying, stigma, um, and structural discrimination in schools, marriage, and employment has been a painful part of the life experience of 99% of today's Ainu. Um, in Japan, a society that claims to be homogenous, um, this is demoralizing. It's very hard to exist in the society if you don't fit this kind of very uh, limited notion of what uh, Japanese citizenship and being Japanese should mean. Um, and so in the face of this erasure and denial, I am using the framework of indigenous modernity to recognize the the innovation, the creativity, and the resilience of today's Ainu um, in having survived what is essentially a genocide. Um, so, and I'll, talk, I'll say more about that um, in a little bit, but um, and there's another really important way that we can understand indigenous modernity, and that is in the context of Japanese history. So rhetoric on Ainu um, in Japan has been dominated for many years by this image of Ainu as a vanishing race, um, a lot of school textbooks still kind of deliver this message to students in their social studies and history classes. Um, this is so widespread that I had many um, Ainu uh, collaborators and friends who actually told me very painful stories that um, they had classmates who would say, you know, say things very nonchalantly like, oh, but there are no Ainu anymore or uh, we don't have any Ainu in our class or in our school, et cetera, et cetera. So sort of this complete sort of erasure of the very fact that, you know, the person sitting next to them was actually Ainu. Um, so this, this discourse of Ainu as a, a vanishing race, it was relevant both as a strategy, strategy of settler, settler colonialism um, to eliminate and enslave Ainu um, in the project of state making for um, crafting colonial Hokkaido. 
Um, but the idea of vanishing was also a key part of molding subjects of the Japanese nation. So under the Meiji state um, and the program of modernizing the nation, Japan sought to reformulate all citizens as commoners. And Ainu Okinawans and uh, Brakumin, uh, or the outcast uh, community, were incorporated as new commoners. So uh, one... Um, a uh, way that this operated is that aggressive eugenics and assimilation campaigns would be administered to ensure that Japan would achieve modernity um, in part through the bodies of colonial subjects who were being remade as subjects of the emperor. So Aino, Aino refusal to be eliminated and the vast um, range of ways that Ainu today express and negotiate with their contemporary identities um, are a very powerful way that they respond to this long history of erasure. And some of the ways we can see this being expressed today in Japan is everything from cultural practice and seasonal ceremonies to performing a uh, manzai or stand-up comedy uh, from an Ainu perspective, or just kicking back with a bowl of, of Sapporo ramen. And all of these are the, the ways that um, Ainu uh, today uh, survive and thrive in contemporary Japan. Uh, these are really fascinating kind of uh, perspectives that you're bringing in. Um, um, and in chapter two, um, contemporary practice and contested heritage uh, examines how Japan's new cultural, multicultural policies shape current practices of Ainu cultural revival. And in contrast, um, so here quoting your book, in contrast with criticism that recent state-sponsored cultural policies is uh, ir- terribly flawed, you suggest in the book that here uh, women have in fact selectively used new policies to support their endeavors in self-craft, making cultural production a site of contestation. Can you speak more about this really interesting creative agency in Ainu gender practices? Yes. Um, so just to kind of situate um, the newer uh, multicultural policies for listeners who may not be uh, well acquainted with recent uh, Japanese legislative history, uh, I'll explain a little bit. So in 1997, um, Japan passed the Ainu Cultural Promotion Act. Um, this was essentially the first uh, sort of multicultural law to be passed um, in the nation of Japan. Um, this was a really important legal step for the Ainu, uh, in particular because it replaced the discriminatory uh, Former Natives Protection Act, which had been in place since 1899, so almost exactly 100 years. Um, but the Ainu CPA, as people refer to it, um, it didn't go as far as to recognize Ainu as Japan's indigenous peoples. So it was lacking in that respect. Um, but it did outline a proactive approach um, to promoting Ainu culture as a strategy for improving the Ainu position in Japanese society. Uh, this, this was followed uh, roughly um, 10 years later by a resolution passed by the Japanese Diet uh, in 2008. And this resolution recognized Ainu as an indigenous people of Northern Japan. Uh, and in response to that resolution, now again, this is a resolution and it was recognized by the prime minister's office. The cabinet actually issued a statement in which they officially uh, recognized this resolution. However, it was does not uh, uh, represent a, a legal measure with the same kind of legal uh, 
uh, import as the Cultural Promotion Act because it it, it was a declar it was a resolution and not a law same uh, status. Um, but in response to this 2008 resolution, the government set up a panel um, whose main job was to um, analyze the sort of situation of um, Ainu and produce a series of reports. Um, they appointed a body of experts and they set about um, sort of investigating the situation of Ainu. And one of the um, they have a very, very long section in their final report, which uh, details sort of the range of ways that they interpret Ainu history. And they essentially, the sort of takeaway for this entire report is that um, the Japanese government is responsible for dealing a quote unquote historical blow to Ainu culture as a result of the Japanese settlement of Hokkaido. And thus, the government of Japan has a responsibility to help restore. Ainu culture and the conditions which will allow Ainu culture and people to flourish, period. Now, this is important because it does not mention anything about an apology. It does not use the word colonization. It does not use the word settler colonization. Um, and it does not uh, refer to restoring any autonomy or self-determination over Ainu land. Um, over Ainu land and or resources, or for example, restoring Ainu uh, full rights to uh, engage in salmon fishing or other types of fishing uh, in Hokkaido or anywhere in Japan. And so these sort of essential questions um, about self-determination, about indigenous rights, about the position of Japan vis-a-vis -vis the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, all of that sort of remained hanging and sort of tabled. Um, so that just gives you kind of a short legislative history um, of the situation for, for Ainu um, at this point. So in response to this Ainu CPA that was passed in 1997, there was actually a tremendous amount of criticism. People felt very frustrated that once again, um, the government was providing some kind of support for Ainu people, recognizing at least that Ainu people exist in an official capacity, but at the same time, um, having a very, very limited framework within which uh, Ainu culture can be uh, interpreted uh, and then practiced and celebrated. Um, and again, it, it seems like um, that framework was limiting in the sense that government um, approved panels would um, be the sort of arbiters of determining what constitutes Ainu culture and what does not. And to some degree, that was true. Um, but what I observed in my experience is that um, in very intimate settings uh, where Ainu women were not under pressure to perform Ainu culture or interpret Ainu culture uh, for uh, a public that was not Ainu. In other words, they were in safe spaces where they could freely um, explore and engage and negotiate with, with uh, what it means to be Ainu and how they would like to express that uh, today um, in these embroidery workshops and language classrooms and uh, food making workshops and sort of cooking, cooking classes, etc. Um, these spaces actually allowed women uh, greater freedom to essentially um, have more play, have more freedom with trying to figure out um, what they wanted uh, contemporary Ainu cultural practice to be. And so 
um, because I observed this freedom, um, the safe spaces that were actually uh, enabled because of the support and the kind of uh, structures that were created by the legislation, um, that actually was a source of tremendous empowerment for Ainu women. And while there's been, there's been unfortunately a lot of criticism and this notion sort of swirling around that, oh, uh, a lot of people are taking advantage of the financial opportunities and just, you know, either embezzling funds or using funds inappropriately. Uh, my observation was that these spaces created um, new types of freedoms, uh, were liberating in the sense that uh, within the rest of their lives, with all of the pressure of Japanese, majority Japanese society, with all of the pressure to uh, work multiple jobs to make ends meet, to be available for their families for any eventuality. Um, there was very little uh, time, space, freedom for Ainu women to simply um, enjoy uh, thinking freely about um, exploring freely what it meant to be Ainu. And these cultural spaces, as I mentioned, the language classes, the clothwork uh, classes, so the embroidery classes, mat weaving, um, the various kinds of material culture uh, and art uh, classes. And of course, the um, even getting together to prepare for a uh, local ceremony. All of these were incredibly important spaces within which, first of all, the community had an opportunity to gather as one, to unite together um, as, as a shared um, Ainu uh, space, within a shared Ainu space. And then secondly, um, there, these were also gendered spaces where not only was it a shared Ainu space, but it was women um, enjoying that space um, as fellow Ainu women and feeling, um, again, really uh, free to kind of explore and um, think about uh, what it meant to be and enjoy being Ainu. And even though when, when I presented sort of a, a very early um, uh, kind of presentation to uh, my first community in Urakawa explaining, you know, these are some of the lessons that I learned from you. Here's what you taught me. Uh, many of the women said, oh, I don't know where you got this interpretation because, you know, we're just here kind of um, enjoying, uh, enjoying spending time together, enjoying the, you know, celebrating the passing of the season, honoring our ancestors, uh, doing this important work for the community. But it's not about, you know, thinking actively about what it means to be Ainu. And so from her perspective, um, certainly that was the case, right? Um, she didn't see it as a sort of uh, overly cerebral activity of sort of uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to be Ainu. But from a kind of broad perspective, um, these spaces, from my, from my interpretation, from my experience, they created a kind of freedom. They enabled a kind of cultural um, exploration that had not been possible um, financially, uh, time-wise, um, with all the different restrictions on Ainu women um, in their lives up to that point. And in that way, it was liberating, but not in the way that the law necessarily intended. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Oh, I see that this is very intriguing material. Um, and in chapter three, moving on. So the clamor of our blood, the politics of belonging and modern Ainu identity. Um, here, um, you kind of talked about how the centrality of blood, race, and phenotype in reckoning Ainu ethnicity within the settler state of Japan um, construct the parameters for who may be recognized as a member of the community um, or not. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about this? Yes. So in this chapter, I'm mostly thinking about um, the tension between the official ways that ethnicity and belonging are reckoned um, in Japan um, under, for example, the uh, the koseki, the household registration system, um, as opposed to temple registers, um, which were the earliest forms of registering and managing populations in Hokkaido. Um, and these two sort of officialdom, systems of officialdom, uh, I am situating those in contrast with what I understand as Ainu traditional or Ainu historical systems of reckoning kin and reckoning um, belonging uh, in the Ainu community. So, um, and this this is actually uh, quite sensitive because um, many of the ways that Ainu historically reckoned kin were actually um, are highly tabooed and highly um, secretive practices. They're gender practices. So, for example, the way that men would uh, mark and uh, track belonging and kinship um, is in some ways a very open and public kind of process. But for women, the process is something that is generally worn, uh, is a garment that is worn underneath the clothing. And so this was an area of great sensitivity that I had to be very, very careful when I was um, doing interviews about this or even seeking out uh, material collection records in museums and in archives uh, because a lot of people feel like uh, this is an area that has been sensationalized and um, uh, sort of uh, racialized, really, and used as a way of um, further kind of demoralizing and stigmatizing um, Ainu, Ainu in general, but Ainu women in particular. So I had to be very careful about this. But so what I'm arguing here is that um, through the process of settler colonialism, um, the Japanese state imposed a system of vertical patriarchal kinship uh, and kin reckoning on what had uh, up until that point been a system of horizontal, bilateral and gender complementarity, um, by which I mean that uh, until that point, um, belonging and family structures had been reckoned both through the male line um, as well. So the patriline and the matriline, right? So both the male side and the female side were important ways in which um, I knew women and men understood their relationships to one another. So for example, and then with the, the imposition of settler colonialism and the imposition of the Japanese system, and especially with the um, introduction of the Meiji Civil Code in 1898, when of course, um, uh, let me step back for just a moment. So Hokkaido was officially annexed as part of the Japanese nation and placed under Japanese 
national law in 1869 under the Meiji government. Um, But what this meant is that by 1898, when the Meiji Civil Code was instituted, the law which required that every family in Japan follow a patriarchal uh, household order wherein um, male elders and were placed in the highest position in the family and women, children, uh, people of less seniority in terms of age, were put in a, in a much lower um, ranking in the hierarchy, that this system of social hierarchy and stratification that was imposed on all families in Japan, essentially the samurai model, which was imported into um, all families again across the nation, that being imposed on the Ainu system um, legislated a, a massive transformation of the Ainu way of um, relating to one another. Now, um, because some or quite a few I knew had already by, by that point um, been marrying into Japanese families, um, there was to some degree already this kind of Japanese patriarchal model had already been imported. But what I'm suggesting is that on the whole, the way that Ainu society um, understood belonging, understood kinship was radically different from the way that the Japanese state understood belonging and kinship. So. What does this mean? This means that through the system of settler colonialism, um, over many, many uh, decades, that Ainu themselves gradually took on the um, sort of uh, colonized consciousness um, that was imposed by this patriarchal system, uh, by which I mean that Ainu themselves understood belonging and kinship to be reckoned through the patriarchal family line, the sort of patriarchal vertical system and to be reckoned through the blood. Okay. Um, And how blood gets imported into Japan um, is another very, very long sort of historical uh, process. But essentially the way that um, people understand um, who they belong to and sort of whether or not they are or are not Ainu is generally expressed through this, um, through this sort of uh, framework of, um, or the language of, um, Either a person has Ainu blood or does not have Ainu blood. So, um, for example, Ainu no chi hiteru, a person is drawing Ainu blood or a person is, is of Ainu ancestry would be uh, one way of translating it into English. Um, essentially, Ainu identity is reckoned through the blood. And so going back to what I was saying about uh, the beginning of the book, um, when we talk about being Ainu versus becoming Ainu, what I'm suggesting is that because of this sort of dominance of the discourse of blood, people often understand um, themselves, but also sort of point fingers to others. Um, so if a person is known to have one or uh, one parent or both parents of Ainu ancestry, then they would often use the expression that, oh, that person has Ainu blood. And so therefore they are Ainu, right? With Without considering um, whether or not a person actually um, identifies as Ainu, um, actively embraces their Ainu ancestry, um, or is even aware of having any kind of Ainu heritage or ancestry, um, because that's another another impact of settler colonialism and the response to the violence of structural racism and discrimination is that many um, children have grown up in households where um, their parents have sought to protect them 
from discrimination and have not even informed them that they have Ainu uh, ancestry in their family. So that's one of the ways that blood matters uh, tremendously in Ainu communities. And then let me just briefly explain the piece about Ainu women's system of marking kin. So there is a special kind of belt uh, known as the upsorkut, uh, or uh, which is worn under the clothing. Um, I translate them in a range of different ways um, in the book. But generally, this belt is, I believe I refer to it as a womb cord uh, in the book, but it's essentially the marker of a matriline. So rather than using ideas of blood or um, uh, following who the, the patriarch or the father figure or the senior male in any given family is, um, each woman uh, wore one of these particular uh, womb cords, which she would tie around her midsection, around her stomach or just below her stomach. And this would be the way that um, uh, she would mark her belonging to a particular matriline. And each matriline had its own pattern and uh, special technique and special materials that were used to weave these cords. And so every, not only was every region's cord different, but every family line had its own particular way of interpreting that pattern. And that would be passed down from generation to generation to generation. And something that's really fascinating, I think, emphasizes the creativity and the flexibility of Ainu families is that there was a special system wherein if you were adopting a woman into your family, you would actually um, uh, welcome her into the family through a particular process, a ceremony within which she would be given a womb cord, uh, the upsorkut belt, uh, which belonged to your family. So there were ways to incorporate and adopt uh, non-blood kin into the family by um, assigning them to be part of your group through giving them one of these womb cords. So obviously the system had important functions in terms of preventing incest um, and helping to regulate um, who could marry whom. But at the same time, it was very much a secret system in that um, while all women um, had these cords and wore them under their clothes, they never showed them to their husbands um, they never showed them to any male member of the household. Um, so they literally guarded them uh, with their life. It was a very, very important symbol of um, Ainu womanhood, but it was also an important um, symbol of belonging and a way that you um, sort of uh, materially uh, reinforced that bond uh, with the rest of the family. Um, and there are several um, really powerful stories within which um, if there was a natural disaster or tsunami, etc. Um, apparently, these womb cords were thought to be have um, be endowed with extremely um, potent sort of protective forces, and so they could be used to help um, uh, stop fires or or uh, defend against fires. Also, to help protect villages from tsunami, um, and they might even be used if you were to encounter. Uh, a very angry bear in the mountains. So these are some of the, the accounts of ways that the only times when um, women would uh, expose their womb cords uh, to the public. And so my whole point in this chapter is to emphasize the fact that Ainu have their own indigenous systems 
of marking belonging, which have nothing to do with the settler colonial system imposed by the Japanese government, i.e. through the patriline, through the patriarchal system of the vertical household, um, or through the temple record system, or through this uh, Western imported system of marking uh, belonging through the blood that I know have their own indigenous systems. And we need to understand that um, to understand uh, Ainu sort of uh, the importance of Ainu self-determination in reckoning Ainu identity today in this contemporary moment. And that Ainu should be able to uh, exercise agency and enjoy indigenous rights in determining um, who, where, how, when a person is uh, is indigenous, um, and that should be something that the Ainu community has control over, and not the central government of Japan. So essentially, this is kind of a historical piece to help make that argument. And chapter four, the gendering of ethnicity in Ainu society. Um, and in fact, this book, um, The Fabric of Indigeneity, is one of the first right to situate Japan's annexation of Hokkaido as settler colonialism. And it is exactly here in this chapter that you turn to the question of how colonization assimilation campaigns in Hokkaido produce gender subjects within Ainu society and how at the same time these campaigns disciplined and reframed ethnicity. Here you introduce the argument that settler colonialism as an imposed system of rule is fundamentally genocidal. Um, could you please tell us more about these really important interventions um, that you're bringing in uh, from the book? Yes, thank you. So I am really excited about chapter four because um, in many ways it was the most humbling to write, but in other ways um, I felt like it was an argument that needed to be put out into the public sphere and uh, really force people to um, engage with the question of the long history of Japanese colonialism. A lot of the work that has been focusing on Japanese imperial projects uh, tends to start with either with the colonization of Taiwan in 1895 or with Korea in 1905. Uh, so so it, it completely glosses over the history of Hokkaido and also Okinawa. Um, and it tends to naturalize because uh, Hokkaido and Okinawa are at the contemporary moment uh, still a part of the Japanese nation. It tends this erasure of Hokkaido and Okinawa from the imperial record tends to naturalize and normalize the position of Hokkaido and Okinawan land as if they were always part of the Japanese nation. Um, and there's no question um, that they should continue to be so uh, into the future. And I think that's uh, very problematic. And I uh, think it's really important that we uh, focus attention on the absolutely critical role that Hokkaido and Okinawa both, but especially Hokkaido because its colonization was, or its annexation was in 1869. Um, these are absolutely critical to the project of Japanese modernity. Um, and so one of the ways that I seek to do that is by framing um, Japan's annexation of Hokkaido as not just colonialism, but as settler colonialism. And I do that because I think it's important that we think about the particular way in which colonialism was enacted um, in Hokkaido, uh, because it took place over many centuries, actually, not just decades, but centuries. Um, in some ways, it's more difficult to recognize that uh, pattern of 
settler colonialism. But indeed, um, I think if we look very carefully, it's very clear the way that it fits the model. So settler colonialism differs from other forms of colonialism in that, um, as you mentioned in the question, it is an imposed system of rule, which is at its core genocidal. Uh, by which I mean the objective of settler colonialism is to displace a community in order to seize the land and the resources um, and ultimately to eliminate the community altogether. It may um, go hand in hand with slavery or it may be based on outright violence or attempts to separate a community from the ecosystem which gives it life. Um, elimination generally starts with expropriating indigenous lands and transferring these into settler possession through war, killing, or forced removal. And um, I didn't get into this in the book, but uh, thankfully a lot of new and fantastic research on um, indigenous experiences of environmental racism um, and genocide and the history of genocide in indigenous communities um, has come out in the last three years. And so I think it's important um, to think about how that matters in the context of Hokkaido. So, for example, under the 1948 uh, Convention of Genocide um, by the United Nations, genocide is recognized as a range of acts seeking to, quote, destroy in whole or part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group, including deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. Uh, this may include, uh, quote, less obvious methods of destruction, such as the deliberate deprivation of resources needed for the group's physical survival uh, and which are available to the rest of the population, such as clean water, food and medical services. And I think if we look carefully at the case of Hokkaido and the uh, ban that was placed on salmon fishing, hunting bear and deer and other key sources of protein and sustenance for the Ainu community that was imposed in the uh, late 19th century, um, I think we can clearly see that there are aspects of settler colonialism which were indeed genocidal in Hokkaido. The other piece, um, I'll speak about it in just a moment, but it has to do with the uh, contract fisheries, which were implemented in the 1740s. So in chapter four, um, one of the main interventions I am trying to make is that while official histories um, periodize Hokkaido annexation um, from 1869, when the Meiji state occupied and renamed Ezo, Ezochi as Hokkaido, I argue that if we stop and shift our perspective to what Ainu women were experiencing, then we must actually roll the clock back and start the colonization of Hokkaido um, from at least as early as 1799 and perhaps even earlier. And this is because in the 1740s, Japan instituted a system of contract fisheries where Ainu were enslaved as corvée labor. Families were severed completely Men were sent to distant fisheries on one side of Hokkaido or one side of Ezo, while their wives were forced to go to the other side of the island. The ethnic uh, Wajin or the ethnic Japanese who managed these camps had arrived in Ezo without their wives and their families. And very soon after, a system of sexual assault began. By 1799, the system had evolved such that the Tokugawa shogunate 
which took over rule of Hokkaido, um, instituted a system of colonization. They issued a proclamation wherein Ainu women were named as Genchi Tsuma, or as local wives, um, under which they would guarantee, quote unquote, guarantee the provision of Ainu women, end quote, to all desiring fisheries personnel, um, regardless of whether these Ainu women were married, pregnant, or whatever condition um, they might have been in. And this led to the spread of debilitating venereal diseases, um, and many women attempted suicide to escape these absolutely wretched conditions. The other point I want to make, sort of um, referring back to the question of genocide, is that in this period, in the late 1800s, right around... um, or right after the institution of the contract fishery system, we see a massive um, depopulation in um, eastern Hokkaido, especially where some of the most active uh, contract fisheries were located. But really across the board, we see a complete uh, collapse of the Ainu population during this period. So I don't know what else to, uh, what other framework to understand that as except through the prism or through the lens of genocide, because it essentially um, had very clear genocidal implications um, and impacts on the Ainu community. Now, I want to say a little bit about the incredibly creative um, and courageous ways that women responded to this, in addition to fleeing um, as fast as they could whenever it was possible. Um, If we look to the material culture record of Ainu women's cloth, we can see women's creative genius and the labor of love that they inscribed in the cloth itself. From right around this period in the late 1800s, women began to sew elongated thorns, barbs, and other protective motifs directly into the patterns themselves. This was used as a means to inoculate their daughters and their loved ones against the violence of these invasive wajin. And so um, women were really among the first to bear the brunt of wajin colonization. And in this way, I argue we would better understand the pattern of Japanese settler colonialism if we were to put Ainu women's experiences at the center of our analysis rather than constantly normalizing them or sweeping them to the side. Wow, these are really incredibly beautiful and touching stories. You know, it's really incredible that you're doing research on this and shedding light on this very understudied indigenous community. And so moving on to chapter five, you reflect um, embodied knowledge. I kind of talked about this a little bit in the forms of womb courts, for example. Can you maybe talk about how women um, attempted to re-indigenize their bodies by embedding these traditional techniques in their muscle memory, what you call in the book somatic memory? Yes. So this um, process of embodying the knowledge um, is really about the work that women have done to um, learn again or learn for the first time uh, for women who had no uh, information about or contact with Ainu um, traditional embroidery or pattern work um, to learn about those processes um, through their bodies. And so uh, in some cases, women had to rely on museum collections, but in other cases, they were able to go to the cloth that was uh, sequestered away within their own family's um, uh, collections, or they went and did apprenticeships or worked with um, with aunties or elders in their community. But essentially, they went to the cloth. The cloth, um, as their ancestor, became their teacher. 
And one of the techniques, for example, um, there's an amazing uh, Ainu artist and scholar, and she is one of the, uh, I think she's the second or third um, Ainu women of PhDs uh, in history. She just got her PhD. Her name is Suda Nobuko. But she has essentially um, gone to work both with elders across Hokkaido um, about 20 or more, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, apprenticed herself to these elders. And she also went um, to museum collections. And from from these experiences, she has um, re uh, sort of remembered and um, recultivated her knowledge of traditional Ainu systems of um, measurement and is employs um, Ainu tools in order to do the work of making cloth. So, for example, everything from the posture that she occupies when she does embroidery and cloth work to the way that she uses, for example, the length from her uh, pinky finger to her thumb, and then the length from the wrist to the elbow, and then from the wrist to the shoulder. All of these have specific names in the Ainu language. And so essentially, the human body becomes a kind of ruler. And so women, uh, Ainu women who did not have um, or didn't have a need for actually um, rulers and um, various other kinds of tools that would be used widely in uh, cloth work today, would actually use their own bodies. They would use their fingernail as a way of sort of etching the pattern into the cloth. And they would measure the cloth itself and the length of the embroidery thread needed um, through, again, measuring these lengths on their bodies. So these are all techniques that um, that Dr. Tsuda has um, very meticulously researched and um, now is writing about um, the absolute creativity of women across Hokkaido. But one of the ways that uh, women were doing this is that they learn these techniques, but they go to the cloth and, and essentially look very closely at the way the techniques and the technology that their ancestors have been using in making this cloth. And by um, doing everything but actually pulling apart the the original pattern and the original um, applique and other materials, you know, almost pulling it apart, but not quite, um, to sort of essentially figure out how things are put together. Um, they relearn these techniques and embed them in their bodies and in their muscle memory. And I refer to this as somatic memory, the idea that you train your uh, muscles and your entire sort of um, uh, emotional and psychological being, um, your spirit, as it were, you engage in a practice of learning the technology, learning the techniques, but also learning the sort of emotional uh, disposition, the emotional kind of sentiment um, of your uh, ancestors as a way of understanding more deeply um, the process of what it means to make these um, make these material culture um, cloth works, but also as a process of um, re-indigenizing of, again, becoming Ainu and embracing um, what being Ainu is about, but also choosing how to interpret that um, for the contemporary moment. So that's what I mean by somatic memory. I see. And speaking of museums, um, chapter six goes into the role that museums play 
Um, so in lieu of repatriation, chapter six gives us a kind of new perspective on the role of museums. So you say that while many uh, analysis of indigenous material held in overseas museums have focused on repatriation, in chapter six, you argue that museums um, actually have become critical sites for reconstituting modern indigenous subjects, specific in their case of, of modern Ainu people in Japan. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So this is um, one of the ways in which um, Ainu Indigenous Revival projects today are very different from Indigenous communities in North America and the Pacific. Um, and that is, again, through the, the role of museums. Um, so museums are frequently seen as symbols of imperial aggression and even sites of violent control of indigenous identity and expression. Um, and in Japan, actually during the 1970s, several museum collections of Ainu materials were targeted by far left terrorist groups um, because they were seen to represent um, symbols of Japan's imperial past. Um, although I think from, from an Ainu perspective, we might say this is not past, but this is ongoing settler colonial present. Um, but since the 1990s, and um, again, this is one of the ways in which the Ainu Cultural Promotion Act has opened up a space within which Ainu women are creatively, um, flexibly negotiating with their identities and using that kind of space to re-indigenize, um, to embrace the relationship with their ancestors and the teaching of their ancestors. Um, and under the CPA, um, museums become became much more flexible um, and much more generous with sharing their collections um, with Ainu cloth artists. For many women, um, as I mentioned before, um, who grew up without a direct um, knowledge of or exposure to traditional cloth work or embroidery, um, techniques, this was a, a absolutely critical um, that the museums began to uh, share their collections and welcome Ainu women into the, the storerooms and the, um, the storage areas. So as I mentioned uh, in the discussion of the last chapter, yeah, so there are several women who um, started out by attending some of these um, clothwork uh, classrooms or embroidery um, workshops who later moved on to uh, making a full-size tapestry, and then maybe even making a full-size um, Ainu traditional um, robe for themselves or for a loved family member to wear at ceremonies. Um, through that process, many many women have become very uh, very curious about um, the sort of range of techniques that Ainu women used um, historically and uh, essentially the knowledge of the ancestors that they may not have access to in their local community um, and or there may not be local elders who are able to um, share that knowledge with them, especially uh, women who grew up in urban areas or um, separated from their ancestral villages. Museums have thus become an, an, a really important source of traditional knowledge. And so today, museums have come to serve as sites of um, of reconstitution of indigenous identity, but also repositories of technical knowledge. Um, women are able to visit their ancestors in the form of traditional clothing and ceremonial regalia. Um, and when the Ainu Cultural Foundation has held international exhibits, Ainu cloth artists have been um, invited, personally invited to visit with the traveling um, cloth masterpieces to examine them close, closely. Um, and again, 
explore and learn more about the techniques of their ancestors. And through this process, they are able to integrate this knowledge and incorporate this into their, you know, their muscle memory and to their somatic memory. And again, this, this helps with cultivating the kind of disposition and the affective posture of their ancestors um, in continuing this work. Um, so in this sense, the part about this that is quite um, unexpected is that one might think that um, Ainu women would then take the next step of demanding that all of these collections must be returned to Hokkaido, because of course, this is our ancestors' Um, our ancestors' important, you know, cultural heritage, and it needs to be here where it can be nearby us. But at the moment, or at least at the time of writing the book, most of the activism focused instead on having these intimate meetings with the cloth in the museums and not focusing on um, actually bringing the physical cloth back. Um, and very much the way that I understand that and the way that uh, women themselves have explained it to me is that repatriation is a process that happens through one's own body. It's through this process of re-indigenizing and learning those techniques and those postures in the bodily memory, in the somatic memory, um, that enables a person to um, recraft, reimagine, and to become Ainu on their own terms. And so they are relearning these techniques employed by ancestors and then utilizing these to make new forms of traditional cloth arts. These may include precise reproductions or more fluid expressions, which blend traditional techniques um, and materials with a range of influences. And again, all of this is open to each artist's interpretation. And this is the part that's quite amazing. So in this sense, museums are contributing to re-indigenization and they are liberating um, for uh, contemporary living Ainu women. Uh, this is a really um, refreshing perspective on the role of museums, certainly. Um, in the epilogue of the book, you talked about uh, recent kind of developments within the Ainu community. So in 2008, uh, the Ainu were first recognized um, for the first time right, as an indigenous people of northern Japan with a unique language, religion and culture. Um, how have things changed for the Ainu people um, in Japan since? So I briefly mentioned this in um, sort of trying to situate the Ainu Cultural Promotion Act of 1997 uh, in my answer to uh, the chapter two uh, discussion just a minute ago. But essentially this 2008 uh, resolution was um, really important in the sense of for the first time having a um, both houses of the Japanese parliament agree that Ainu are an indigenous people um, and that they are um, completely distinct from the traditional language, cultural practices, religion, et cetera, et cetera, of Japan. And this was a, a very much um, a liberating, important moment for, for Ainu. However, um, one of the sort of caveats of that, as I mentioned earlier, was that um, any discussion of indigenous rights or self-determination were essentially tabled. And in fact, in June of that very year of 2008, just, just three weeks after this law was passed, there was an official parliamentary inquiry that was posed to uh, the Diet um, by one of the um, elected um, representatives. And the question was, um, how can we interpret um, 
Ainu, um, as indigenous people within Japan, vis a vis the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and vis a vis other indigenous peoples around the world, and what can we anticipate, you know, in terms of indigenous rights in the future? And the answer was really disheartening, considering that they had just past this incredible, revolutionary, it seemed like epic changing kind of law, or excuse me, kind of resolution in 2008, um, the answer, the response of uh, the official uh, response from the government was, Ainu people are indigenous, but this, this notion of indigeneity, the way that we understand that is specific to the case of Japan. It is not the same as the kind of indigeneity we might talk about in Australia, in New Zealand, in North America, and in other contexts around the world. So essentially, Japan was claiming the exceptionalist argument, right? So Japanese indigeneity is not the same as indigeneity elsewhere. And therefore, um, Ainu indigeneity is not eligible for the kind of indigenous rights that are being granted to indigenous peoples in other countries where there are, for example, treaties with the government um, and a whole range of sort of legal precedents um, upon which indigenous policy is being crafted. And so Japan was essentially saying that is not the case for Japan. Now, in the time since that, um, since the passage of this resolution, there's been a lot of um, momentum. There was a national survey uh, carried out to assess the population of Ainu and the circumstances of Ainu economic, uh, et cetera, living conditions of Ainu outside the prefecture of Hokkaido. Um, there was also a working group put together to come up with a plan for um, some kind of national um, facility for um, for Ainu culture um, and to promote traditional crafts or excuse me, to promote uh, Ainu traditional arts uh, in Hokkaido. And those working groups have continued um, and essentially the kind of draft that was put together by the working group on um, uh, putting together what they called the, uh, the euphemism was the symbolic space of ethnic coexistence um, was the term that they're using for this facility. And that has now um, been uh, officially uh, announced as the National Ainu Museum. Um, but it still has that sort of odd, uh, very kind of vague uh, euphemism kind of attached in the language when they talk about what the National Ainu Museum is. Um, but so those are some of the steps that have been taken in the past um, decade. And and just a while ago, in this year, 2019, Japan is preparing a bill to be passed to add a certain legal weight to the recognition made in 2008. Um, what do you think maybe are some of the implications of this bill if passed? This is the, the most recent sort of turn of events is that in April uh, of this year, the Diet actually did uh, pass this uh, new Ainu law. Um, however, <laughs> unfortunately, um, there's been a lot of concern, a lot of criticism, and there was a lot of discussion before the law went through. A lot of recommendations were sent from the Ainu community um, because essentially this law is not, um, again, it does not include any kind of an apology. It does not address um, or sufficiently address the issue of historical discrimination. It does not talk about settler colonialism. And most importantly, it does not um, stipulate any rights to self-determination or independent education for the Ainu 
even though um, Japan was a signatory to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So essentially what the law does do is it sets up a, an official uh, government-sponsored Ainu policy promotion headquarters, a lot of bureaucratic uh, language there, um, and it will be formulating a basic guidelines to assist um, local, uh, local governments in developing um, promotion of Ainu culture, industry, and tourism. Um, and then the central government is going to be helping out with subsidies for these projects. And then the other piece, the piece that's probably most um, in line with the UN declaration is that this law um, essentially smooths the process um, for Ainu to get permission for traditional salmon fishing and collecting timber and other kinds of gathering natural products uh, from the forest, um, from the forest and from wild areas around Hokkaido to be used in ritual context. So that that part is perhaps um, somewhat, you know, revolutionary. But I think the most um, the most disappointing piece is that we still have not made any progress towards um, instituting any kind of indigenous rights. Um, even instituting self-determination so that Ainu can make their own choices about what kind of cultural practices, what kind of ritual practice, um, uh, how they want to uh, engage in education. Those, those sort of questions are not part of this law. And then finally, um, the other sort of big elephant in the room is there's a lot of discussion that the, uh, the diet rushed uh, to pass this law because the uh, 2020 Olympics are coming to Tokyo next year. Um, and so they have long been planning for this, you know, quote unquote, symbolic space of ethnic coexistence, i.e. the new Ainu Museum uh, to be built and it's established in Hokkaido, um, again, to coincide with the Olympics. So there's a lot of speculation that the whole thing is just a giant economic um, plan to lure tourists from Tokyo, where they attend the Olympics, to come up to Hokkaido and um, basically participate in tourism centered on the new Ainu Museum. But it also will include a lot of subsidies to promote tourism to uh, towns and regions across Hokkaido. So again, it's uh, the bottom line is really about sort of generating income, not necessarily for Ainu themselves, but income for communities where Ainu live and where the community may be able to promote a kind of an Ainu cultural or traditional um, kind of message and tourist product as a way of recruiting uh, tourists there. So people are very um, frustrated and don't feel that the law really did anything to benefit them. It's really more about sort of an economic boost for the prefecture of Hokkaido, from my understanding. Well, Professor Lewallen, we've taken up a lot of your time and thank you so much for sharing your incredible research with us. I really enjoyed your, reading your book and, and thank you so much again. Take care. Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity to speak about the book. <laughs>